Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, I thank the pastor and all the leaders of the church for letting me in the door for crying out loud. This is an amazing thing. My dear wife, Jenny, and I are overjoyed not only to be with you, but also to be in Des Moines because we have a lot of family history here. My dad grew up in Des Moines. Jenny's mom and dad lived in West Des Moines for over 30 years. So yesterday <clears throat> afternoon, we took a trip down memory lane and drove around and saw the neighborhoods, and it was really great. So we're really, we feel like we've come home in a certain sense by being here with you today. We're very grateful. Now, let's open the Bible to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This, these, these might be <laughs> the greatest words ever written. The Gettysburg Address is amazing. The Declaration of Independence is amazing. The Magna Carta is amazing. This is more amazing. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. It is amazing, isn't it? Here's why this is a game changer. You will see your life, you will size up your existence, you will rate your chances in either of two ways. One way to see your life is how Jean-Paul Sartre put it bluntly in his play, No Exit. He said, you are your life and nothing else. You are your life and nothing else. What did he mean by that? He meant that you are what you make of yourself. You are the sum total of your choices. You have no excuses. You, ha you don't own 
or cannot own anything beyond yourself and what you're capable of. You have no excuses. You can never take a break because there's nothing beyond yourself you can fall back on. Your fate is in your own hands entirely, and when you die, that's it. You are your life and nothing else. And without Jesus, Sartre would be right and immeasurably bleak. There's another way you can see your life. It starts becoming real to you when you give up on yourself. When you stop saying to God, hey, I'm all for you. I'm pro-God. But hey, God, I've got this. Thanks anyway. We stop thinking like that and we start treating Jesus as real, relevant, and rewarding for my future, for your future. We start relaxing because in him there is more to you than you. The gospel of God's grace comes alive to you. You begin to see that you have failed to prove yourself. You have truly no excuses. Your self-image collapses, but Christ, through the gospel, comes to you and gives himself to you. You realize he's not recruiting me for his team because he needs me to strengthen his hand. He is inviting me to collapse in his arms in all my failure and need. And we receive Christ with the empty hands of faith. Offering nothing, needing only him. The empty hands of faith. And he fills. God can only fill empty hands. He gives us the perfect life he lived he gives us the atoning death. He died. He takes your story and rewrites your story as part of his story. He takes your film and splices it into his cinematic magnum opus. Sartre said, you are your life and nothing else. God says you are in Christ and nothing else, if you'll have him. So you'll see yourself in either of these two ways, either having to make yourself, justify yourself, realize your wonderful potential, satisfy yourself, exalt yourself, etc., or you will accept Jesus as your better self. And you're done with that. And now you're, you feel immeasurably, in, to use secular language, you can't believe your luck to have Jesus. Christianity is not God coaching you in improving the self, the old self. Christianity is God giving you Christ as your true and better future. And when God gives himself to you, when God loves you, the point here is he never takes it back. 
He's not having second thoughts. He's not having reservations about the commitment he made. He's not taking it back. And God doesn't fail. The love of God is the love of God for crying out loud. And you are not such a spectacular sinner that in coming to Christ, your sin is so extreme that you, for the first time in all of history, will defeat the Savior of the world. I'm sorry. He's a better Savior than you are a sinner. You have met your match. You might as well just say, okay, Lord, I give up. You win. I'm all in. Because he's all in. The love of God is not a weak, pleading love that might or might not work out. The love of God is the only reality in all this world that cannot betray our trust. We do sin against his love, and we are sorry about that. There's so many moments in our lives we wish we could do over. We sin with deeply ingrained habits. We sin when we know better. We sin against the help of the Holy Spirit. We sin when we're capable of a better choice. We sin against the plain teachings of the Bible. We, we hurt the people we love. We can read Romans 8, 31 to 39 and still not be sure about God. <laughs> and not even that can stop the love of God. If we will receive Christ with the empty hands of faith, we realize my obedience has no buying power anymore, not with God. My obedience is monopoly money in God's real world economy. I let it go. I have never done anything to get God's attention. I have never given God a reason why he should love me. I've given him plenty of reasons why he shouldn't. Guys, I've been trying God's patience since 1949. The only difference between me and most of you is I've lived long enough to sin more. The only reason why I'm a preacher is that God knew he'd have to have a lot of eyes on me. Keep me in line. And what we're involved in here with nothing but Jesus, we're just hanging on to him for dear life, right? This passage is saying he will never stop loving us. He will never walk away. We will not wear him down. Because he loves with the love of God. God loves successfully. That's the whole point. God knows how to love out of us all the barriers that we erect to his love. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, centuries ago, here's what he wrote. A man may love his friend as his own soul, and yet his love may not be able to help him. He may pity his friend in prison, but not relieve him, bemoan him in misery, but not help him, suffer with him in trouble, but not ease him. We cannot love grace into our children. Man, do we wish we could, right? Nor can we love mercy into a friend. We cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the greatest desire of our soul, but the love of Christ, being the love of God, produces all the good things he wills for his beloved. He loves life into us. He loves grace into us. He loves holiness into us. He loves us into covenant. He loves us into heaven. Exactly. Guys, We've parachuted into a universe where the love of God gets the last word for everyone who accepts Christ, his son. 
In this passage, Paul asks four questions about the love of God. He is not worried about this itty-bitty, weak little thing called the love of God going up against the hard realities of human life. He is unleashing against all these itty-bitty hard realities of human life this massive, nuclear-powered, volcanic, exuberant love of God for the undeserving. And he has, so he has four questions to lead us into a kind of happy, awestruck defeat where we stop telling God all the reasons why he should hate us. Why aren't you listening to me? Don't you see what I've done? I hate me. You should hate me. If you have any self-respect at all, you should. You really ought to despise me, God. It's only right. See, that narrative is inside us. This passage is here to say, I'm sorry, that just doesn't work with God. You can yell at him all day long, and he will still say, I love you. Deal with it. Four questions about the love of God. First question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Huh. I love the tone of that question. I love the cheerful defiance. I love the attitude in that question. There's no hand-wringing here. There's just a bright confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not asking who can be against us. There's a lot against us. Our past is against us. If my past were projected up on these screens, sort of game film highlights from my past, you wouldn't let me preach here. And if yours was up there, I wouldn't want to preach to you. (laughs) We'd all walk out, wouldn't we? Our past is against us. Satan is against us. Sociological trends are against us. Our nation is spiraling down into self-inflicted injury. So he doesn't ask who's against us. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? We don't deserve God as our ally for us. But to God, just the way God thinks, the fact that we don't deserve him is not a reason not to love us. It's, in his way of thinking, a reason to love us all the more. Because God glorifies his grace in Christ by loving the undeserving. And if God, just being God, is for you, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, he said to us, he looked us right in the eye, and he said, whatever else is going on in this world, here's what I want you to know, everything is going my way. And if we are in him, everything is going our way. So God just being God, God doing what God does, orchestrating reality moment by moment, if God is for us, then reality is for us. And all that's going on in the world today. There are terrorists, probably, I'm going to guess, right now somewhere in the world plotting some awful, horrible crime. in our nation or somewhere else. 
And there's a lot of kindness in the world, too. So there, there's some precious grandmother baking cookies for her grandchildren right now. And everything in between. In it all, in Paris, in Santiago, Chile, in Beijing, China, in Des Moines, Iowa, Nashville, Tennessee, everything. If God created all things, right, then all things have some kind of relationship with God. And if God created all things and all things have some kind of relationship with God, then all things have some kind of relationship with each other too. And everything is linked. Everything is interconnected. God is never absent anywhere. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the sustainer. If that superperson is for us, well, I think we're going to be okay. You figure? If your future were going to shut down, God would have to shut down. Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where did God, God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The father gave him up. The father abandoned him. Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When everything was on the line and all our sin, all our sin was poured out upon the head of Christ, our substitute, God did not rescue him from that damnation. Jesus was not saved so that we would be saved. Here is, that's the very definition of the love of God. And here is Paul's question about that. After the cross, how will God not freely give us all things? After the cross, is God going to start nickel and diming us now? After the cross, is God going to hold out now? Is God going to stand aloof? Is that what we should expect, a reluctant God? It's inconceivable. It makes no sense at all. So what's the point? The point is, if God gave up his son for us, there is no limit to the love of God for us. And we all might wonder, hmm, what would I have to do? What would it take for God to say to me, really? Oh, man, I knew you'd be a headache, but I did not count on this. And this time, I'm sorry, but you had just crossed a line one time too many. I'm done. I'm out. Will God ever say that to you? It is unthinkable. Why? Because we treat, deserve to be treated pretty well? No. Because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that we will never be abandoned. God will never turn on his heel, turn his back to you and walk away in disgust. God is as committed to you as he is committed to his son because he gave up his son for you. 
You have no right to despair. This is saying, God does not limit his love for you. God unlimits his love for you. He's all in. Having given his son for you, God plans, moreover, to give you all things, everything. So what's inside that? Select the words, all things, double click. Here's what comes up on the screen. Your sinless personality... You will be radiant. In your resurrection body, you will be formidable. <laughs> Athletics in the new earth are going to be amazing. Um, and our personalities, can you imagine the sense of humor we're going to be capable of in the new earth? rolling on the ground in laughter in the presence of God. The whole universe is going to sparkle again. Earlier in chapter 8, he says, the, the universe, the whole creation has been subjected to futility. It's captive and held down to bondage. It's like it's been suppressed. All its capacities have been held down like a coiled spring just waiting to go... The universe is going to be renewed. Your personality, your body, the whole universe, and then this whole human race from every tribe, nation, and tongue. All these amazing human beings. Heaven will be very human. And every person you meet forever will like you. And there will be no awkwardness we won't need awkward conversations anymore. It will never happen. We're all going to be completely comfortable. And every person you meet, you will think, oh my goodness, I just met my new best friend. <laughs> we will be in the presence of God, finally. Unrestrained, fully redeemed, because of what God committed to at the cross. If you think you can mess that up, I'm sorry, but you're 2,000 years too late. This is what God promises when we accept Christ as sinners. Third question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn there's a lot of condemning religion in the world. Some religion thinks, you know, if we just hold guilt over people's heads, it'll get them to behave better. Let's jerk them around. Let's manipulate them so that they'll, you know, behave themselves. That is not Christianity. God does not want you feeling condemned. Though The gospel is that God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God justifies them. That is, God pronounces them righteous. God pronounces them okay. God pronounces them kosher in his all-holy sight. So God pronounces us who come to Christ and hold on for dear life. God pronounces us righteous sinners. God pronounces us successful failures. 
That's our new position now, before the all-holy God above. That's where we stand now, with Christ as our legitimacy, Christ as our okayness in the sight of God. And because it is God who makes that determination, it is God who makes that pronouncement, He justifies, nobody can de-justify us. There's no Supreme Court above God to reverse His verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Now, this is really powerful. The theologians call it the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all our works, merits, deservings, obedience, attainments, wonderfulness, etc. That free justification, that new non-accusing place where we can stand before the all-holy God above, where we just take our place in Christ, that awareness, that new vision, that confidence, that assurance, that is how we fight against the demoralizing, ripping, tearing, shredding, accusing thoughts that scroll by between our two ears. That tell us there's no point in even trying because you're hopeless. Martin Luther taught us how to fight. Here's what Luther said. When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. And the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sin, Satan. You will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and despair. On the contrary, when you say, I am a sinner, you give me weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. My sin is on his shoulders, not on mine. So, devil, when you say I'm a sinner, you don't terrify me. You comfort me greatly. Thank you, Satan. That's how you fight, guys. That's how you get back on your feet. And then you find yourself thinking, I really do have a reason to live. I'm in a new place now. Justified. I am a mess but I'm a justified mess. I am a mess, but I'm his mess now. So let's take the next step. I'm just, I'm just thinking now, there are probably, maybe we go through three stages before this really lands on us. It's like stage one, clueless, oblivious, positivity. That was me my senior year in high school. Like, I was invincible. But I love Jesus. You know, and he loved me, and I had accepted Christ. Fine. Romans 8, 31 to 39, at that point in my journey, was saying to me, it's going to be okay. God is for you. Stage two, since that is unsustainable, life implodes. We sin. We are sinned against. That catastrophic disaster that we thought would never happen, happens. And we hit rock bottom. 
And Romans 8, 31 to 39 at, in stage two says, you're going to get through this. God is for you. And then, to our own amazement, we move on to stage three, where we're back on our feet, wiser, more humble, more realistic, more wounded, deeper, better human beings, now able to help other sinners and sufferers more meaningfully. And Romans 8, 31 to 39 says to us, you're going to get through this. God is for you. I wonder where you are. One thing let's not do is X this out and say, no, that can't be true because what the devil is telling me, screaming in my head, that I'm just such a sorry loser, there's no hope for me, I think I'm going to believe that. I, no, no, I, I think the reason why the Lord brought me to church today, why the Lord brought you to church today, is for us to read Romans 8, 31 through 39, and sort of think out loud about it for a while, so that something new is born within us. A kind of defiance based on the love of God for us. And we say, hey, you wicked, awful, devilish thought, get out of here. I'm so done with you. Janie really helps me in this way. When I'm spiraling down into my own self-hatred and so forth, and, and I'm belly aching to Janie, you know, telling her that I have no future, I'm going to ruin everything. What she says is so helpful. She says, Ray, that thought, is that Jesus talking to you? It's like, <laughs> hello? Thank you. That's so clarifying. <laughs> if you're ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, come worship with us at Emmanuel Church. We have what we call the Emmanuel Mantra, and we all say it together out loud every now and then. It's very simple. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. Why don't we say it out loud together? One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. So there you go. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And though he, he, then he takes this inventory of these horrible experiences. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for starters. You fill in the blank with what has happened to you. And in all these things, not safe from all these things. Embedded in, surrounded by, right in the middle of all these things, we are more than conquerors. And that is life, that long inventory that is so dismaying. That's life for people God loves. We deeply accept it. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? That means... We go through famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and so forth, and we come out the other side believing in the love of God more than we did before. How does that happen? That's being more than a conqueror. That happens not because we love him, but because he loves us. Here's how we win in life. 
not by winning, but by trusting. Hanging on to Jesus for dear life and taking the next step to follow him, whatever it might be. It feels like suffering and dismay and anguish. It feels like loss. It feels like that's robbing us of life. The truth is, all these experiences are only taking us deeper into the love of God. So, all right. Hey, I'll see you in heaven. And we'll loop back and we'll tell our stories how God in his love held on to us through thick and thin. Deal? All right, let's pray. Lord, hang on to every one of us and in spite of ourselves, Lord, convince us very deeply of your love so that we, every one of us can say, I am sure of the love of God. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.